Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry once again. Thank you for joining me today as we consider another end-time message that we pray will help you prepare for the coming of Jesus. We've spent a lot of time in the recent months on the prophetic implications of the political matters in the world and other current events, and particularly in relation to the United States, which is the second global center of prophetic fulfillments, the first being the Vatican. It is time to remember that the Bible is at the center of our hope and that it gives us everything we need to navigate the end times right down to the close of probation. The inspired voice written 2,000 years ago speaks to us today as we walk in the love of Christ and face an increasingly hostile world. This should not surprise us because the enemy of souls is being given more latitude and freedom to work his mysterious iniquity in the hearts of men. We see his latitude in the way protesters on the ultra-right and on the ultra-left fight with each other and kill each other sometimes. We see this in the extremism that leads to terrorism. We see there are wars aplenty. We see this principle in operation in the rapes, theft, abuse, slavery, and other crimes. All these things Jesus predicted. He did not give us all the details of these unfortunate and rather wicked developments, but he gives us enough so that we can know that we are very near the end. Religious liberty is under assault around the world like never before. Hate speech, violent speak, the political rhetoric all tell us that Jesus is coming in the clouds of glory very soon. Today, though it is time to go to the scriptures and look at how God's prophet Elisha dealt with the real issues in his own day. We need to anchor ourselves in Christ, my friends, and understand the meaning and application of the Old Testament story found in the life of Elisha to our own times. And there are very big lessons to learn. We often seem to miss who is the real enemy. It's not the Republican conservatives or the Democratic liberals. It is not the Labor Party or the Liberal Party. It's not any other political construction or human engineering. The real enemy is evil and deceptive. He gets us to think that we're doing good when we're really doing his bidding. He tries to draw us into the controversies of the day. He tries to anger us by injustice and abuse and unkind actions. He stokes evil feelings of retaliation, even among church members. The anger and angst at monuments which are sometimes perceived as symbols of injustice, and the reaction by opposing forces has already turned deadly. But this is only a sample of what we expect to happen when the anger is turned against God's people. It will be deadly. And when the voice of the Holy Spirit can no longer be heard, only God's outright protection will preserve His people. Let us never forget that God stands in the shadows, keeping watch above His own. And if you are in Christ, my friends, 
You are in God and there is nothing that can harm you or deceive you or in any way lead you down the wrong path. If you are in Christ, you follow his promptings and he guides your steps through the Bible and the indicators from the Holy Spirit. Remember Psalms 119.05 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And friends, I don't know about you, but I see this verse is telling me that though the rest of the world is in spiritual darkness, God will see to it that I have a light to guide my feet and keep me from stumbling when I am in Christ. We need to practice the reality of this verse. Don't do anything without first consulting the Bible and your God. Don't open your mouth and say anything until you've darted a prayer heavenward and asked for divine wisdom and unction from the Holy Spirit. This is vital to your survival in these last days. So many of God's people are not living by the word. They only go along from day to day without a thought hardly at all of God, who sees and knows everything they think and do. He knows that they're not listening. And like ancient Israel, they are as blind to the proceedings of heaven as anyone can be. And it's because they are so preoccupied with their daily lives, their personal agendas, or they fall into the emotions of the political matters that roil the press. There's a famine in the land, my friends. It's not a famine for bread and water. It is a famine for the hearing and doing of the word of the Lord. Everywhere you turn, people are angry, it seems, and they don't have peace. Yes, there have been some bad events in recent past, but these are only a harbinger of the things to come. There is also darkness. This world is in such gross spiritual darkness that people cannot understand spiritual things, but many of them long for light. A few months ago, I sent you a sermon on Isaiah 60, which was intended to help you think about the kind of man or woman you need to be in order to receive the latter rain and be the bright light that will appeal to the Gentiles, kings and rulers, and people of every stripe, and lead them to the Savior. I hope it was a blessing to you. But the darkness is really out there. It's very real. And the story of Elisha reminds us of the forces we're dealing with in these last days. It is a prophetic prototype of our own circumstances. As we begin, let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are starting to see the forces of the enemy preparing for the last great conflict. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be given to us that we may be in Christ, so that when chaos and violence is unleashed, we can stand unmoved and certain of our future in God. Give us the peace and the certainty that we are in the hands of the Almighty. Send your lovely spirit to soothe our troubled hearts and give us your wisdom and blessing today as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. What is really going on behind the scenes, my friends? What is the cause of the unrest, the provocation, the violence and turmoil in our land? The Bible makes it clear we are living in an age that has been predicted to see these things take place. Jesus himself said that it, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. He pointed out that they will kill you thinking they are doing God's service. All of this anger and violence is conditioning people to unleash so much more violence on God's true people one day. They are being trained to think violence. The thoughts and the imaginations of their hearts are only evil continually. 
The enemy of souls is behind all this, and my guess is that he has used various human agencies, societies, individuals to orchestrate this from George Soros to the Jesuits. But the bottom line is that the real cause of all this violence is the enemy of souls. And he has had a lot of practice over thousands of years. Now let us turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings 6, 24. Remember that earlier in chapter 6, the Syrians had surrounded the city of Dothan, and Elisha's servant was terrified. Elisha simply told them in verse 16, Fear not, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Then he asked God to open the eyes of his servant, and now his servant could see the legions of angels protecting the city and Elisha from the enmity of his enemies. Elisha also asked God to blind the eyes of the armies of Syria in a fitting symbol of their spiritual blindness. He led them into the city of Samaria and then asked God to open their eyes. And they were now captives. But Elisha was kind to them. He fed them and treated them with respect. Very magnanimous indeed. The lessons are powerful. No matter what forces you're up against, God's forces are more powerful. No matter what difficulties or trials, no matter what enemies you face, God is bigger than it all. One angel has power to stay all the hosts of darkness when it comes to God's true followers. Ben-Hadad represents the human enemies of God's people. Think about who they are today. There are the globalists, the Vatican, the Jesuits. There are the infiltrators, the false teachers, the false brethren, and even the pseudo-conservatives. That's those who pretend to be loyal to the truth, but are not loyal to all the truth. The Bible must be understood to have application to our times, and this story represents the relentless opposition and war against the people of God by their enemies and by the archenemy, Satan himself. 2 Peter 2 verse 9 says, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Friends, this is a great promise. We need to realize that if God be for us, who can be against us? To practice this kind of confidence in God when you cannot see the future is what God wants from us. It is this kind of faith that Christ is developing in his true followers. Elisha, who represents those living in the last days, practices calm assurance, even in the face of the enemies of God's people. By faith he sees the hosts of heaven protecting him. He sees what the eye of unbelief cannot see. Friends, if you think that all is lost and that nobody cares, look up and see that the hosts of heaven are working for you by faith. See that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. What God did to deliver Israel from Egypt on a grand scale, he will also do for you on a personal level. I've seen it so many times in my life, I can't count them all. I'm astonished at how God delivers. Take courage, my friend. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. Even though Elisha has healed Naaman, Ben-Hadad's top general, even though Elisha has been magnanimous to the captured host of Syria, it seems that Ben-Hadad is a restless enemy. He doesn't understand that God is defending Israel and that he has no chance of overthrowing it. He doesn't realize that if he keeps this up, he is going to eventually be destroyed by the wrath of God. Ben-Hadad's cup of iniquity is not yet full, however. 
Elisha is God's man on the ground, that God can use to bring Israel, his church, to its senses. But God also gives Ben-Hadad another opportunity to yield himself to God and surrender to divine authority. But he was having none of it. He was so determined to overthrow Israel that even though Elisha had demonstrated that Ben-Hadad was on a fool's mission, he still strained himself and put himself to great pains in order to bring trouble to Israel. Without provocation, he surrounds the city of Samaria, seeking its destruction. Let us read verse 24 of chapter 6. And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. Some nations have a restless hatred toward other nations even today. No matter what they do, they still try to destroy them. It is the same between the churches. Some churches and their leaders have an unrelenting hatred for God's Sabbath and His Sabbath-keeping people. And no matter how friendly and kind God's church is or God's people are toward them, they will always try to undermine God's people and even destroy them. What does after this refer to? Remember, it was in the verse. It's saying that after all the kindness that Elisha has done to the Syrian armies, after all that God has done to enlighten them, they are still going to attack Israel and put God's church to distress. And this is the way it is in the last days. You can be as kind as you can to your enemies, but they're still your enemies. There are base spirits that can never feel obliged. And if you win a friend in the process, that's all good. But most of the time, enemies inspired by Satan are still enemies. You cannot trust them. You cannot send your children to them to educate. You cannot give them money to preach against you. You cannot pal around with them. You can love them and be kind to them, but they're still dangerous. Error is always dangerous, we're told, and though it is not easy to see, the war on God's church is being stoked in the streets of our modern towns and cities. The strife and conflict are currently directed at another target, monuments or white supremacists or whatever else. But really, they are preparing and training for the final assault on God's people. They're just practicing their violence. Elisha's experience is instructive to our own. God's church is going to come under siege. The enemy is already arraying his forces and is building war machines to destroy them. Let's read on. Verse 25 says that because of the siege, there was a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver and the fourth part of a cab of Doug's dung for five pieces of silver. The capital city of Israel was brought to its knees, to its last extremity. The people were starving. Perhaps the siege was so sudden that they did not have time to store up provisions for a long time. Think about it. The physical represents the spiritual prophetically. And if you don't store up spiritual provisions, my friends, you will not survive the coming spiritual famine. They were unprepared, and you will also be unprepared. Like the ten virgins in Jesus' parable, five of them had laid up extra provisions of oil for their lamps, but the foolish virgins did not, and when the bridegroom came, they did not have enough to take them through the night. We must prepare by storing up spiritual strength for the time when we will need it, the time of famine, for the word of the Lord. Lamentations 4 verse 9 says, They that be slain with the sword are better than they that be slain with hunger. For these pine away, 
stricken through for want of the fruits of the field. Whatever the case, the famine was so grievous, and the food was so scarce, that even an ass's head, which has but little flesh on it, is unsavory and unwholesome, and which is also ceremonially unclean, was still sold for eighty pieces of silver. The small quantities of lentils, often called dove's dung, no more than the quantity of about six eggs, was sold for five pieces of silver. You see, my friends, spiritually speaking, the fruit of the field are the lessons that you can learn from the Bible. If you haven't stored up spiritual provisions for the time of trouble, you may not have your Bible to read when God's people come under direct assault. The inflation in the city was monstrous. Nothing was going in or out of the city. Food stores were getting terribly low, and merchants were profiteering off the pain of the people. It was getting so bad that people were desperate. The Syrians apparently determined not to storm the city, but to starve it. We are to learn to value plenty and be thankful for it, my friends, and see how worthless money is when in the time of famine it's so easily parted with for anything that's eatable. Verse 26 says, As the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king! Now think about this for a minute. This church member was desperate for food. She begs the leader, the king of Israel, to help her. But Jehoram, the son of Ahab, cannot. He has gone up on the wall to direct the guard and post the archers or whatever else. And here is this woman who cries out to him, Help, my lord, O king. Where else should the, she go but to her prince for help? By his office as king, he is her protector and the avenger of wrong. He should bring her food from his own barns and drink from his own winepress. But Jehoram's barns are empty too. His winepress has failed him as well. Under normal circumstances, he would have plenty of provisions, enough to feed an army. These would be the last to fail. But now he doesn't have enough to relieve this ailing woman. His response in verse 27 is interesting. He says, If the Lord do not help thee, whence shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor or out of the wine press? In other words, let us be content and make the best of our affliction, looking up to God, for till he help us, I cannot help thee. His response is not out of peevishness or arrogance, as some would perhaps conclude. He is actually tender with her, because notice his next question and the shocking answer. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, this woman said unto me, Give thy son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son, and did eat him. And I said unto her the next day, Give thy son, that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. Imagine how bad the famine was. They were reduced to cannibalism. These two young mothers make an awful agreement. We must presume that their husbands are now dead. So with the babe in her arms, she boils her son, and these share his flesh. Friends, God has not promised that we will always have plenty. He only says that our bread and water shall be sure, that is, the bread and water of his followers. But those who do not obey Christ and live for themselves, they will suffer extreme difficulties in the time of trouble. Consider this woman again. She is a church member, but one that is very hungry. And often people come to church waiting to be fed by the present truth of Scripture, but they go away disappointed. 
There are many that experience this every week, and over time their hunger gets deeper and deeper, and they continually go away disappointed. Someone then comes and offers to give them something meaningful. They start to study these things, but it is false doctrine, and they end up worse than they were before. The enemy does his best to make the time that should be filled with joy and spiritual blessing during a church service a curse and a source of famine. Often the leader who has no experience with Christ cannot feed the flock with the living bread. Like the king of Israel, he has nothing to offer, and sometimes through backbiting, gossip, and other unsavory behavior, we eat our own spiritual posterity. Here's another point. Notice that the king is subject to the famine as well. He's no better off than anyone else. In times of plenty, we often make distinctions between people. Some are respected more than others, for instance. Some are treated differently than others because they have money or influence or whatever. But in the end, when the time of trouble comes, we are all, that is, all the faithful ones, reduced to the same level. This can be very humbling for those who are used to being on a pedestal and having prestige and benefits and other things that common church members do not have. But in the time of famine, we are all reduced to the same basic necessities. We will all suffer under the discipline of God. That is when we will see who has developed the character that will stand in the day of God. That is when we will see who has made preparations and laid aside spiritual provisions to call upon. Times of famine often follow times of plenty. We cannot be sure that tomorrow will be the same as today. So, preserve what you can, because no one knows whether there will be enough for tomorrow. Lay up the treasures of the Word of God in your soul, so that when the pressure comes upon you, you will have stored enough provisions to get you through. The King's Commandment is also another truth. Everyone is helpless without God, even in times of plenty. Yet, we don't often recognize or acknowledge that. It is often far from our minds when times are good. It is when we enter straight places and challenging times, when there seems to be no escape, that we are reminded of our utter dependence on God. God allows, and even ordains, challenging times to come upon His people, so that we do not forget that we are nothing without Him. The woman and one of her neighbors had made this barbarous bargain. Just imagine eating your own child. That's horrific! This is a severe instance where the dominion of the flesh overcame that of the spirit when the natural affections of the mind were overpowered by the natural appetites of the body. All of this is the consequence of rebellion and sin. Israel turned its back on God over the course of seven kings, from Jeroboam through to Ahab and Jezebel. God has seen to it that the king of Syria punished Israel so severely that they were eating the flesh of their own children. And when God withdraws his protection, things can be pretty barbaric. This is exactly as predicted by God himself through Moses. Deuteronomy 28 verses 50 to 57 gives us this prophetic warning. I'll only read the pointed verses. A nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young, and he shall besiege thee in all thy gates, until thy high and fenced walls come down, wherein thou trustedest. 
throughout all thy land, and he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land, which the Lord thy God hath given thee, and thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee, in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee. Isn't that an awful prediction? God makes it clear that they will be so hungry that they will eat their own children, the very ones that God himself gave them. Obviously, they didn't believe it. They rebelled against God and came under the power of Jezebel. Then, even after Jezebel was gone, they still rebelled and refused to follow God. Now God was going to fulfill his prophecies very powerfully. Do you think God would do that today? Are we so spiritually blind that we turn our backs on God and bring rock music into our churches? This is like the golden calves that Jeroboam set up in Dan and Bethel. Are we going to start ordaining those whom God has not authorized? Remember, Jeroboam sent the true Levites packing and ordained the lowest of the people to do the work of the priest. Are we going to bring competitive sports into our schools, wine into our hospitals, and other plain departures from the law of our God? We sacrifice our children on the altar of the new order, that has come into the church. We eat their spiritual flesh, as it were, by feeding them violent, sensual cartoons, TV programs designed to shape their minds in evil ways, and give them music that isn't fit for a Christian. How can we ever recover? We're at the mercy of our enemies, really. Are we so spiritually deaf that we can be deceived by spiritual formation, ecumenism, and other false principles? Liberalism eats up our children and our families, my friends. Because the worldliness has come into the church, they lose any chance that they had of spiritual interest and fervor. Worldliness changes the way the church relates to God's law and God himself. It blinds us to the real consequences of sin. Only believe, we are told. Don't worry about anything else. This story, my friends, has special spiritual significance for us today. It shows us that this is not something that we can do. What they were doing literally, we are doing spiritually. Let me read from verse 34. So that the man that is tender among you and very delicate, his eye shall be evil toward his brother and toward the wife of his bosom and toward the remnant of his children which he shall leave. Conflict, conniving, and meanness breaks up families that should be strong spiritually. Why does a family break up? It is usually because of selfishness on the part of one or the other or both partners. Does that sound familiar? Now let's read verse 55. So that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children whom he shall eat, because he hath nothing left him in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee in all thy gates. The tender and delicate woman among you which would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness, her eyes shall be evil toward her husband of her bosom, and toward her son, and toward her daughter, and toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet, and toward her children which she shall bear, for she shall eat them for want of all things secretly in the siege and straightness wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in thy gates." Now listen to this from Daniel eight twenty three to 25 This is talking about the papacy. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, 
a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Notice here again is this phrase, fierce countenance. This king is the enemy of God's true people, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper in practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. This is saying that the papacy is going to try to destroy the mighty people. That's the people with the mighty power of the Holy Spirit in the latter reign. It is also the people who have sanctified themselves by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. They live in the sight of a holy God without sin. They purified themselves by obedience to God's law and the principles of heaven, even in this wicked and chaotic world. They did not get involved in the political defense of their own rights, nor did they engage in political questions and social reforms which would just drag them down spiritually. They remained true to God. Notice verse 25, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. This power is deceptive. It sneaks in among God's people and infiltrates into their sanctuaries. It raises skeptical questions and ridicules the present truth message so that God's people lose their certainty about the principles that God has given them. And when the time comes, the papacy will be prepared to besiege God's church and make God's people suffer under persecution, spiritually starve them. Don't expect the brick-and-mortar buildings to remain available for church members to use, my friends. Remember, the Bible will tell you how to understand and apply itself to our situation and times. It will tell you how to understand it by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Notice that the term fierce countenance of the Syrian king in the time of Elisha is a prototype of the king with a fierce countenance at the end of time, or the papacy. Verse 30, And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. Then he said, God do so, and more also unto me, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shapheth, shall stand on him this day. Jehoram's irritation and indignation against Elisha was unjustified. He should have taken a lesson from his father's experience with Elijah. But Jehoram is so blind that he blames Elisha the prophet for the calamity. He lamented the crisis, but he did not lament his own wickedness. He was concerned about the effect of the famine on his people, but he did not realize that it was his own sins and that of his people that had brought on the siege in the first place. The foolishness of man perverts his way, the Bible says. He twists things around to the point where he does the opposite thing of what he should do. Instead of blaming Elisha and vowing to lift off his head, he should have blamed himself and vowed to take down the golden calves in Dan and Bethel. He should have let the law take its course against the prophets of the groves. Elisha had dealt with the prophets of Baal, but Ahab's son, whose responsibility it was before God to get rid of them, let them remain. Jehoram now blames the prophet Elisha like his father Ahab blamed Elijah and swears that he will kill him. But isn't that the way it is for God's faithful people in every age? 
They seem to often get blamed for national calamities because they do not go along with the wickedness. And in the last days, it is the very ones who are loyal to the law of the Lord, who keep his seventh-day Sabbath and refuse to worship the beast or his image, that get blamed for the calamities that come upon the land because of the iniquity of its leaders and people. The same is true in the churches. Often it is the faithful pastors who are let go from the ministry. It is the pastors who love the message that are often removed from their ministerial role or are taken out of the larger churches and assigned to the small conservative churches way out in the country. What is the matter with the king? What had Elisha done? His head is the most innocent of all in Israel. It is also the most valuable in all of Israel. And yet his head is made an anathema. The same thing happened in the time of the persecuting Roman emperors. When the empire groaned under any extraordinary calamity, the fault was laid on the Christians, and they were doomed to destruction. Perhaps Jehoram was hot under the collar with Elisha because he had foretold this judgment. Perhaps Elisha had persuaded him to hold out and not surrender. Or perhaps because Elisha did not pray to raise the siege and relieve the city. In any case, Jehoram was angry with Elisha and wanted to kill him. Elisha was not likely to pray for relief until Israel had repented of its sins and reformed its ways. In any case, the king had no reason to expect that the prophet would do anything. Verse 32. But Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. Jehoram was like a wild bull in a net, or the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Meanwhile, Elisha sat well composed in his house, as calm and serene as an evening sunset. He had the elders with him and was employing them in instruction in the law of the Lord, no doubt. Continuing on with verse 32, The king sent a man from before him, but ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See ye how this son of a murderer has sent to take away mine head? Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door, and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? Elisha told the elders there was an officer of the king coming to cut off his head, and told them to stop him at the door and not let him in, for Jehoram was following them. The same spirit of prophecy that enabled Elisha to tell what was done at a distance authorized him to call the king the son of a murderer. For under normal circumstances, we are not to speak evil of dignitaries. 2 Peter 2, verse 10. We may need to explain things about their behavior to understand their prophetic role, but we are not to call them names, swear at them, and treat them with disrespect. Of course, we see this all the time in the media about political leaders, but this is wrong and sinful according to the scriptures. Jehoram was the son of a murderer, all right. His father Ahab had authorized the killing of the prophets of the Lord under Jezebel's direction. He had also had Naboth killed so that he could have his vineyard, and no doubt he killed others as well. Elisha had done no evil, yet Jehoram, Israel's king, was out to get him. Is there a connection between Elisha and God's people in the last days? Does this sound like anything you have read about the future of God's people during the time of trouble, just before Jesus comes again? Listen to this comment about the final conflict from the book The Great Controversy, page 615 and 616. 
As the Sabbath has become the special point of controversy throughout Christendom, and religious and secular authorities have combined to enforce the observance of Sunday, the persistent refusal of a small minority to yield to the popular demand will make them objects of universal execration. It will be urged that the few who stand in opposition to an institution of the church and a law of the state ought not to be tolerated, that it is better for them to suffer than for whole nations to be thrown into confusion and lawlessness. The same argument many centuries ago was brought against Christ by the rulers of the people. It is expedient for us, said the wily Caiaphas, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. John 11.50 This argument will appear conclusive, and a decree will finally be issued against those who hallow the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment, denouncing them as deserving of the severest punishment, and giving the people liberty, after a certain time, to put them to death. Romanism in the Old World and apostate Protestantism in the New will pursue a similar course toward those who honor all the divine precepts. Elisha is a prophetic prototype of those who will live through the final global time of trouble such as never was. Under pressure from natural disasters and other calamities, God's people will be seen as the cause. They will appeal to the people, as Elijah and Elisha did, to return to the law of God and to his true worship, but they will be viewed as traitors, as troublers of the people, and as the harbinger of more evil to come. Getting rid of them will seem like the most logical and conclusive way to get back the blessing of God upon the nation. Today, the President of the United States claims that he will bring back jobs and prosperity and make America great again. But if he fails in this, perhaps he will need a reason, a scapegoat, so to speak. Or perhaps a future president will need one when he or she fails to fulfill campaign promises to get the blessing of God back upon the nation. They will then blame the very ones who are holding back the strongest pains of the wrath of God as if they're the cause. Think about it. Evangelicals are rising in power and influence. They will eventually claim that God's judgments are upon the nation because of national backsliding and press for Sunday laws to get the nation back to God. In the midst of the terrible crisis, Elisha trusted God's purposes to bring Israel back to its position of distinction from the world. God would show that relief will only come from God. It would be so dramatic that there would be no question that Israel was delivered by the God of heaven. And he used Elisha to predict the dramatic turnaround. Let's now look at 2 Kings 7 verse 1. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, in the gate of Samaria. Elisha prophesies that despite the desperate situation, despite the famine and starvation, despite the armies of Syria blockading the city, and despite the hopeless situation within 24 hours, Israel would have plenty. Their case was going to go from the worst case to the best case. Men's extremity is God's opportunity to magnify his own power. God brought Israel into such straits just so he could demonstrate his power. God's time to appear for his people is when their strength is gone. And when they give up expecting help, that's when help comes. Listen to Deuteronomy 32 verse 36. 
For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. Has God ever done that for you? Has God stretched your faith so tight that you almost gave up hope? That's what he did for Israel. I know some people that just can't seem to understand that. They get all upset and blame God for their extremities and difficulties or lash out at him. You see, when you are at the very bottom and God delivers you, you love him more than ever. That's what God wants to accomplish. And when you've directly and clearly seen his handiwork on your behalf to deliver you from some serious problem or perilous situation, you become more loyal than ever. So when you're in difficulty, that is the time to trust him so that he can deliver you. I've seen it with my own eyes and in my own life many times. It is wonderful when you can consciously trust the Almighty God to deliver the godly out of temptation to doubt him. Now think about this. In the last days, God's faithful people will be tried to the uttermost. They will be in desperate straits. They will be without resources, without defense, and without hope. They can only trust in the promises of God. They cannot see how they can escape their enemies who have designed not only to humiliate them, but are planning to destroy them. At the most desperate moment, when circumstances are the worst, and it appears that all is lost, then is when God will choose to deliver his people. And when God delivers his whole church by his mighty hand just before the second coming, he is bonding them collectively to himself as a purified church without spot or wrinkle. Here it is from the book, The Great Controversy, page 635. The people of God, some in prison cells, some hidden in solitary retreats in the forests and in the mountains, still plead for divine protection, while in every quarter companies of armed men, urged on by hosts of evil angels, are preparing the work of death. It is now, in the hour of utmost extremity, that the God of Israel will interpose for the deliverance of his chosen. When the Son of Man comes... Shall he find faith on the earth? Luke 18.8 You see, my friends, this is true faith. When your enemy puts you into an extremity, you look to God for deliverance. Your experience in this now prepares you for the future final test. Where was deliverance for Israel going to come from? After all, all the food in the city was exhausted. Israel had no way to fight the Syrians and no way to replenish food for the whole city. Elisha didn't say what dramatic miracle God was going to do for them, but he was very clear that the people could trust the God of heaven to fulfill his word. Now let us read verse 2. Then a Lord, on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? Elisha was not impressed by this Lord's lack of faith. This was one of Jehoram's most trusted servants. He was a very high official, and he questioned God's promise. And now, apparently, Jehoram arrives and asks, What? Shall I wait for the Lord any longer? Friends, let me ask you a question. If you don't trust God's promises, will they be fulfilled for you? Of course not. They are conditional upon your faith. And in the end time, God is looking for people who will trust Him implicitly, even when there appears to be no hope. The same has been true in every age. God's people have always been put to the test. If they fail, then God can't really use them like he would like to. Elisha essentially said, Well, 
You hear what this man says? Now hear the word of the Lord. Hear what he says. Hear it, heed it, and believe it. Tomorrow, corn will be sold at the usual rate in the gate of Samaria. In other words, the siege will end, the gates will open, and the market will function as before. This seemed to be impossible when Elisha spoke these words, but they were nevertheless a certainty because Elisha was under divine inspiration. In spite of the king's determination to kill Elisha, God determined to deliver him. God also determined to deliver the king and all of Israel from the Syrian menace. Where sin abounded, grace doth much more abound. The Lord, who openly declared his disbelief in the prediction and promise, was a courtier whom the king had an affection for, as the man of his right hand, on whom he leaned, that is, on whose prudence he much relied. He had a lot of confidence in this man. Elisha was not impressed. He knew that God, who could rain corn out of the clouds as he had done as he had done with manna, or multiply the meal in the barrel as he did for Elijah in Zarephath, he could easily provide for all the needs of his people in an instant. The terrible lack of faith was certainly going to be repaid. Elisha responded by another prophecy, this time a terrible one. Behold, he said, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shall not eat thereof. That's verse 2. Unbelief is a sin by which men greatly dishonor and displease God. It also deprives them of the favors he wants to bestow upon them. The murmuring Israelites saw Canaan, but they could not enter in because of their unbelief. We forfeit the benefit of God's promise if we cannot find it in our hearts to believe God's word. Let's read on. And there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate. And they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come, and let us fall unto the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. These men were not as desperate as the people in the city. They saw a glimmer of hope in their situation, and God blessed their little bit and led them into the camp of the Syrians, thinking they would meet the foe and quite possibly be killed. Verse 5, And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the utmost park of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. No doubt these lepers were prompted by the Spirit of the Lord to throw themselves on the mercy of the Syrians. But what they found was astonishing. There was no one there. Not only was everything left as it was, there was food and drink everywhere as well. Not only was the siege lifted on the edge of darkness at the twilight, but it was obviously lifted in a hurry. Not one sword was brandished against them. Not one artillery was raised against them. Not a drop of blood was shed. There was no thunderstorm, no hail, nothing abnormal. The Syrians apparently fled the scene in great haste. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. The besiegers were completely gone. How did it happen? Well, verse 6 tells us, For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, 
even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. And while the Syrians that besieged Dothan had their sight imposed upon, these Syrians had their hearing imposed on. God knows how to work on every sense to bring about the counsels of his will. Just as God makes the seeing to see and the hearing to hear, he can make his enemies blind and deaf. We don't know whether the noise was literally made by the ministry of angels or if they just heard a noise in their ears. Either way, they were frightened that perhaps the king of Israel had hired others to come after the Syrians. Friends, I think it's interesting that at the sight of horses and chariots, the prophet's servant had been encouraged, and while the sound of horses and chariots terrified the hosts of Syria. Noises from the invisible are either very comforting or very terrifying, depending on whether men are at peace with God or at war with him. If the Syrians would have thought about it, they would have perhaps not fled as rapidly as they did. Perhaps they would have stood prepared to fight. After all, the Egyptians and the Hittites would have had to come a long way. And how would the king of Israel, who was under a close siege, have informed them of his need? And what would he have hired these foreign powers with? He was destitute. They would have had more to worry about from the king of Judah than the kings of Egypt and the Hittites. But there they were in great fear where there was no fear. None of them had enough sense to send out scouts to spy out the supposed enemy. The wicked flee when no one pursueth, says Proverbs 28 verse 1. God can, when he pleases, discourage the boldest and bravest and make the stout heart to tremble. Those that will not fear God are vulnerable. God can make them fear at the shaking of a leaf. On the other hand, those that do fear God do not fear even the mightiest of men and their most formidable of enemies. They stand unmoved amid all the chaos and danger that the enemy can throw at them. Christ stands by their side. In the time of trouble just before Jesus comes, God intends to use his faithful people to demonstrate his character amid the mess that the enemy has created in the world. Verse 7. Wherefore they rose and fled in the twilight, and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. They fled with incredible haste. They left everything behind, including their horses, which Israel would need to replenish their cavalry. Verse 8, And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent, and did eat and drink, and carried thence silver and gold and raiment, and went and hid it, and came again, and entered into another tent, and carried thence also, and went and hid it. Some think these lepers were Gehazi and his three sons. If so, ironically, God provided for them too, though Gehazi seems to have fallen back into his old ways of greed. But then it is as if he remembers the reason why he is a leper and considers that it is better to tell someone of their good fortune rather than to suffer a worse fate. Verses 9 through 11 say, Then they said one to another, We do not well. This day is a day of good things, and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come, that we may go and tell the king's household. So they came and called unto the porter of the city. 
And they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied, and asses tied, and the tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. God still is trying to win Gehazi, isn't he? He uses him to tell others the good news. The king cannot believe the Syrians are that fearful. He thinks it's a Syrian strategy to draw the Israelites out of the city and then attack them. After all, he thought, the Syrians had no reason to flee. Obviously, the king of Israel, nor any of his attendants, had not heard the noise of the chariots and horses that had frightened the Syrians, nor can he believe that God has visited him with good fortune, since he has forfeited God's blessing by his unbelief and impatience. A guilty conscience causes men to fear the worst and makes them suspicious. Verse 12 through 14. And the king arose in the night and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore they are gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants answered and said, let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they are as all the multitude of Israel that are left in it. Behold, I say, they are even as all the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed. And let us send and see. They took therefore two chariot horses, and the king sent after the host of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they sent out spies to find out what had happened to the Syrians. The Bible says, They went after them unto Jordan, and lo, all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Verse 16, And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. The Lord intended that the spoil of the Syrians would replenish the Israelites, just as the Egyptians enriched them as they left Egypt. The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the righteous, or the just. Proverbs 13, 22. This is a great lesson to us in the end times. God knows how to supply our genuine wants. He knows how to spread a table in the wilderness. He knows how to give bread to the hungry just like Elijah was fed by the ravens at the brook Cherith or at the widow's home in Zarephath, God can feed a whole nation when necessary. He'd done it for Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. When we are brought low, that is when God steps in and supplies our need. When we are crucified, that's when he resurrects. Israel little thought that God would deliver them in their distress by the very ones who had brought the distress upon them. Imagine, my friends, in the last days, how do you think God will sustain his people? My guess is that in some way he will even use their very enemies to provide their bread and water, at least some of the time. It matters not how. What is truly important is that God's promises are absolutely certain and they will surely be fulfilled. When we trust God and follow his instructions in the Bible, he provides everything. Verse 17. And the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned to have the charge of the gate. And the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died, as the man of God had said, who spake when the king came down to him. 
The Lord's unbelief was deadly. This lesson is very important for us today. If we do not have faith that God's promises will be fulfilled, we are headed for the same end. Not because God is looking for ways to punish us, but the fact is the whole kingdom of heaven and its principles revolve around trusting God to do what He says He will do. I'm amazed at how few of God's people have tested God and His promises. Very few have a living experience with Him. Very few believe that He will actually fulfill them. Let me put it another way. We are to test everything by the Word of God. If the world says that it is good to play competitive sports because there are good lessons you can learn from it, like teamwork or how to be a good loser, you can go to the Word of God and discover for yourself that God condemns competitive sports. Just check out Philippians 2 verse 3. I'll read it to you. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. It's that simple. If we follow God's word, he will bless us with spiritual insight and maturity. But if we disobey, we will be spiritual pygmies. And that's where a lot of God's people are today. And we're right at the end of time. If God says to him that overcometh, and then a promise, it is saying that our sins can be overcome. Why then do many preachers and teachers tell us that our sins cannot be overcome? Other places in Scripture tell us how, but very few people believe the promise these days. So how then can Christ work in us to will and to do of His good pleasure if we do not believe that He can? Lack of faith in God, my friends, leads to sin and death. The story of Elisha is a powerful example of end-time living. God put His Holy Spirit on Elisha in double measure because Elisha believed God's promises. Friends, we need the faith of Elisha, whose trust in God was implicit. Now verses 18 and 19. And it came to pass, as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this same time in the gate of Samaria, and that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, and but shall not eat thereof. God's promises were fulfilled, just as God through Elijah had predicted, including the death of the Lord who disbelieved. My friends, let us have faith in the God of heaven, and in His exceeding great and precious promises. They are our life. They are our hope. They are our success and our access to heavenly power and to heaven itself. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, great is thy faithfulness, and great are your promises. You can put whole armies to flight. You can overthrow the whole array of enemy combatants who want to lead us astray. And if they can't do that, they will destroy us. You can deliver starving nations. Father, please, we pray, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts that we may learn how to have faith, how to overcome through Jesus, and how to live eternally. May the story of Elisha and the Syrian army be especially dear to us. It teaches us so much about the end time. And when Jesus comes in the clouds of glory, I pray that we will be ready to meet him in Jesus' name. Amen.
We hope that you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. If you've been impressed by this message and it has stirred and blessed your soul, please consider making a gift to help some other poor souls find their way to heaven through the CDs from Keep the Faith Ministry. The song you've just heard is called Oh for a Closer Walk with God, sung by Melissa Collette. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Glorious Love. 
This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. And if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each, postpaid to U.S. addresses, to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the Glorious Love CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, the top 10 most post-Christian cities in America. The Barna Group recently released its ranking of the top 10 most post-Christian cities in the United States. These are cities where residents are least likely to believe in God or say that the Bible and Jesus are perfect. Eight of the most post-Christian cities are in the Northeast, with Portland, Auburn, Maine topping the list. In order to qualify as post-Christian, Barna's 76,505 respondents in the cities had to meet nine or more identifying factors from a set list. The list included categories such as do not believe in God, identify as atheist or agnostic, have never made a commitment to Jesus, have not prayed to God in the last week, agree that Jesus committed sins, and disagree the Bible is accurate, among others. Barna explained that the type of questions it used went beyond simply asking people to check a box for whether they're Christian or not, and delved into the core of what they actually believe. Barna included a top 100 ranking of such cities, with the top 10 listed as follows. Number one, Portland, Auburn, Maine, with 57% post-Christian. Boston, Massachusetts, and Manchester, New Hampshire, 56% post-Christian. Number three, Albany, Schenectady, Troy, New York, with 54%. Number four, Providence, Rhode Island, New Bedford, Massachusetts, with 53%. Number five, Burlington, Vermont, Plattsburgh, New York, with 53%. Hartford, New Haven, Connecticut, with 52%. Number seven, New York, New York, with 51%. Number eight, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, California, with 50%. Number nine, Seattle, Tacoma, 50%. And number 10, Buffalo, New York, with 50%. By consequence, the role of religion in public life has been slowly diminishing, and the church no longer functions with the cultural authority it held in times past, Barna added. Many studies have shown that the influence of religious leaders and churches is gradually declining in the United States. A Gallup poll in 2016, for instance, showed that 21% of U.S. respondents to a survey did not have a formal religious identity while only 2 to 3% said the same in the 1940s and 1950s. Also, Gallup found that church attendance is declining as well, with 73% of respondents in 1937 said they were a member of a church, while that number had declined in 2016 to 56%. Overall, 72% of those surveyed in 2016 by Gallup said that religion is losing its influence on American life. No wonder religious leaders in America are salivating for more political power. They feel their influence waning and want to recover some kind of influence, even if it's merely political. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Matthew 24, verse 12. 
Next, Trump's offer to Christians was the same offer the devil made to Christ. Many evangelicals have made a mistake when they made a deal with Donald Trump. Vote for me, he said, and I will give you Supreme Court picks and abolish the Johnson Amendment. Mr. Trump's tempting offer is remarkably like another made two millennia ago when the devil offered Jesus the power to rule over all the kingdoms of the world with justice and mercy, if only Christ would bow down to the devil. American Christians should not have taken a deal Jesus rejected. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Mark 8.36 Evangelicals want to change America through politics and the courts. They fear the decline of Christianity if the Supreme Court shifts any further to the left, and they want to take it back to the right. So they have focused on the promises of Mr. Trump to bring conservatives on the Supreme Court and fashion it in their image. But if the churches need the court to save souls and empower faithful witness, both spoken and lived, then they are truly lost. Christ promised a cross and the Holy Spirit, not tax breaks for businesses and a worldly court to defend Christian beliefs. It is folly for evangelicals to place their hope of religious freedom in a man who says he'll use the government to give them more power. Why do they need more civil power except to force their will and their beliefs on others? Can't they preach powerful, life-changing sermons and live powerful lives that will change hearts like Jesus did? And where did this anti-Johnson Amendment stuff come from? In what world do they think it's a good idea to allow churches to use their tax-deductible tithes and offerings in the support of political candidates and for churches to become openly partisan political operations? Is there a faster way to turn God's house from a house of prayer into a den of thieves? What will this do to the evangelical witness? By accepting Trump's deal, evangelicals have traded all they are, their spiritual heritage, for a mess of pottage. Yes, that's right. Evangelicals were the spiritual descendants of the great reformers of the 16th and 17th centuries. Once compromised by the ecumenical movement, they no longer carry a Protestant message. They lost their spiritual birthright and have become vulnerable to political temptations of the Trump presidency. Mr. Trump will definitely not save the church's influence in an increasingly secular world. As a politician, the only thing he can do is give them more political power. He cannot restore their moral influence or morality and Christian decency in America for that matter. Those things are gone forever except in the lives of faithful souls who live above all the political distractions in light of Christ's countenance. But the age-old question for Christians during times of moral decline is whether they will turn to a strong man for salvation from the liberal left, or keep faith in the one who controls the strong man through meekness, love, sacrifice, and forgiveness. God's kingdom will come regardless sooner or later. But what will evangelicals say when the Lord asks them in whom they trusted in the last days? Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. Psalm 146, 3 and 4. Next, the GOP helps President Trump legalize politics in the pulpit. The religious right with a big boost from President Donald Trump is close to effectively ending a 63-year-old law banning churches from endorsing or opposing political candidates. 
House Republicans have quietly inserted into a spending bill a provision that limits the Internal Revenue Service's ability to investigate religious organizations for violating the law. Since 1954, under a provision championed by then-Senator Lyndon B. Johnson, known as the Johnson Amendment, nonprofits, including churches, universities, and foundations can lose their tax-exempt status if they engage in overt political activity. The Johnson Amendment has been particularly irksome to conservative religious movements, especially evangelicals, who've been gaining clout since the late 1970s. Republican White House hopefuls have for years eagerly courted the evangelical vote. Clergy are permitted to preach on issues of concern, and churches can issue voter guides that offer views on issues. Trump has continued to vigorously support the religious constituency. In an interview with Pat Robertson of the 700 Club TV program, the president said he's been a boon to the evangelicals who supported him because I've gotten rid of the Johnson Amendment, and now we're going to try and get rid of it permanently in Congress. He didn't exactly get rid of it, but he's getting close. In May, Mr. Trump signed an executive order that aimed to give churches more ability to speak out politically. Evangelicals criticized his action as too vague. Republicans in the House are trying to correct that. They've included language in a must-pass spending bill for the fiscal year beginning October 1. The provision would prevent the Internal Revenue Service from investigating a church unless the IRS commissioner signs off and notifies Congress. Why should ministers, whether they be in a synagogue or a church or any other place of worship, have their freedom of thought and speech suppressed, asked Representative John Culberson, a Republican from Texas, who worked to include the language in the bill. Frankly, it's offensive for the IRS to try to squelch the thought or political speech of a pastor or minister, Culberson said. Mark Harris, senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Charlotte, North Carolina, called the measure to weaken the Johnson Amendment a step in the right direction, though he would prefer that it be repealed. Harris has participated in Pulpit Freedom Sunday, an initiative begun in 2008 by the Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative nonprofit group in which pastors take to the pulpit to protest the Johnson Amendment. Richard Land, president of the Southern Evangelical Seminary near Charlotte, North Carolina, said, I think this will help thaw out the chilling effect that this has had on freedom of speech for churches and religious groups a chilling effect aided and abetted by liberal and progressive groups who used the Johnson Amendment to intimidate conservative Christians, Protestant and Catholics, from expressing their views on public policy issues. Not all faith leaders agreed. A group of more than 100 faith organizations sent a letter to Appropriations Committee leaders opposing the change. Weakening current law would allow politicians and others seeking political power to pressure churches for endorsements, dividing congregations and opening them up the flow of secret money, they wrote. It may not be seen clearly that repealing or changing the Johnson Amendment will lead to the unity of church and state, but any true student of Bible prophecy can see that this will bring them much closer together, particularly if restrictions on the use of church money for political campaigns is permitted. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. The Great Controversy, page 592. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings 
on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.